podcast one production. Jenny Cooney has been a part of Hollywood for 30 years, reporting on all the Aussie stars, from Hoags to the Hemsworths, Hugh Jackman, Nicole Kidman, Margot Robbie and beyond. This is Aussies in Hollywood. My next guest, someone I'd never met before, but a man who has one of the greatest stories an Aussie could have as far as making it in Hollywood. George Lazenby is only known for one role, but it's one that most actors would kill for. In 1969, he became the only Aussie to ever get cast as James Bond in the film On Her Majesty's Secret Service. I went to visit the 79-year-old actor in his lovely apartment in Santa Monica, where he told me outrageous stories about his womanising ways, how he landed the job without ever acting in his life, and why he walked away from a multi-picture offer to return to Bond, leaving the way clear for Roger Moore. Here's George. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. And um, uh, I feel like even though the title of my podcast is Aussies in Hollywood, your big break didn't come in Hollywood. But uh, here we are, sitting in Santa Monica in your apartment. You know, how many years since it all happened? A long time. 50. <laughs> 50, wow. So um, let's just go back to the Australian part of your story because everybody wants to claim you as their son. Um, is it Goulburn or Queenbien? Well, I was born in Goulburn and moved to Queenbien when I was 12. Not my choice, but uh, my father went up there to start a fruit run business, you know, where the trucks would go and knock on the door and my uncle put up the money, but he didn't like it. So, uh, but we ended up being there for, uh, oh, till when? I left in 70, uh, what was it? No, 64 I left, Queenbeam, to come to uh, London because the girl that I was in love with uh, said she'd be over there for three months and uh, after the three months she didn't come back because she was going out with a captain of the Oxford cricket team. <laughs> and I had to go over and get her back, but I didn't know she was with him. I'm going to get to that part of the story in a minute, but I'd just love to hear about your upbringing in Australia. Um, were you an outdoors kid? Did you, had you discovered films or TV back then? Do you remember? No, I went you know, with all the other kids on Saturday to see the movie, but that was all the experience I had there. But I grew up kind of differently because when I was three years old, I had one and a half kidneys out. Wow. And uh, the doctors told my mother to take me home to die because I won't live as a man with half a kidney. <laughs> they didn't tell me that, but they told that the kids at school heard about it through their mothers. And, they, and I was the kid, you're the guy that's going to die. <laughs> you know? So I had a little bit different upbringing, but I, uh, the half kidney grew the size of two. And I went back down to Sydney to see the doctor, and I walked right past him. He said, where's the boy? Because he thought I wouldn't grow because the kidneys have something to do with your growing as well. And uh, wow. he said, he just walked past it. He said, my God, I was as tall as a doctor. So uh, that's how I started out life, with thinking that I wouldn't be here that long. So I did everything you could think of. I raced motorcycles when I was 12. I bought, I was a telegram boy when I was 12 in Queanbeyan. And then... Uh, so you mean on a bicycle like you deliver telegrams? Uh-huh. But then uh, I had got enough money to buy a motorcycle. And I got a uh, friend of mine, Leo Concilio, who, who killed himself on a bike, to hot it up. He was a motorcycle mechanic. And so I could outrun the police bikes. At 12? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, you got no idea. Well, I didn't know what adrenaline was. But I felt great for a week if you, get, you, know, you have uh, police chasing you. Until um, some sparks came off the road in front of me and... Uh, I said, well, they were shooting at me, so I decided not to do it anymore. <laughs> and I was called the Blue Flyer. And uh, that was, you know, I was always looking for thrills, but not uh, as an actor. And so I know that the girl you fell in love with, is it true she happens to be the daughter of Robert Menzies? Or is that the, no, is that, no. She's was the that a different of, woman? Yeah, you know, she's the daughter of Jack Fingleton. He was the captain of the Australian cricket team. Oh, okay. And he was talking to Bob Menzies when I went up there for my first date. And I walked in and I said, uh, Jesus, mate, you look like Bob Menzies. Not expecting it to be him, you know what I mean? You don't expect to run into the Prime Minister on the first date with this girl. <laughs> and they looked at me rather weird. 
And as I was walking, I said, no, really, you do look like him. <laughs> <laughs> and she goes, please be quiet. <laughs> so they lived in the same town? Oh, at Canberra, yeah. Oh, so this was in Canberra. Yeah. And he was the captain of the Australian cricket team? Prior to that, yeah. yeah but Bob wow. Menzies apparently loved cricket. Of course. And they used to chat about it. And Jack Fieldson <laughs> had written a lot of books on cricket. Wow. And he didn't like me at all. I mean, he got his daughter to go to London to get rid of me. So that was part of the deal. And then, uh, and then she got introduced to the captain of the Oxford cricket team and that was right up Jack Street. So uh, there I was. It took me three months to find her because there was no emails or anything like that in those days. So you were in Australia. She'd gone. Um, you were working at that point. Yeah, I was a used car sales manager. Youngest one in Australia, I was only 21, 22. And, uh, but I was a mechanic. Were you in Canberra at this point? Or? Yeah, I yeah. was doing my apprenticeship in Canberra. In fact, um, then when I got the job as used car sales manager, because I could drive a car and figure out what was wrong with it and how much it was gonna cost to repair all the repairs, the repairs and whatnot. So I was perfect for a sales manager, used cars. And they're the heart of the business. And when uh, I was given the job, uh, there was about eight salesmen there and they all walked off the job because they'd been there 20 and 30 years. And here's this young kid comes in and gets and they walked, they walked off with their briefcases. And, he, and I said, oh, I guess uh, I've got to <laughs> retire already. And the boss said, no, you don't. Get yourself a new team. So I was looking for a new team, but the next day the, all the salesmen came back because they didn't have a car, they didn't have a job. Their, their wives said, don't be silly, go back to your job. And uh, they accepted me as a sales manager. And uh, that's how I started meeting upper class people because the embassies, uh, they stay there for two years, then they gotta get rid of their car. So they'd invite me to their parties and whatnot because they think they'd get a better deal if they knew me or whatever. <laughs> so uh, that's how I started out. Um, you know, I was uneducated. I didn't even get an intermediate certificate. I was the only guy in Queenie that didn't get one. <laughs> <laughs> I used to get into so much trouble at school that the uh, headmaster was giving the yearly speech after I'd left. Uh, he started off with, you've noticed anything different about the school? And everyone's looking around for a new building and they couldn't see anything. He said, Lazenby's left. <laughs> and my sister was still at the school. Oh. And she came home that day embarrassed, crying. And, and, uh, but that's how uh, effect I had on uh, the, uh, the teachers there who used to cane me, you know, at least once a day. What were you doing that got you into so much trouble all the time? Well, we'd started messing with the uh, school teachers' cars because, you know, I'd, I'd put the potato up the exhaust you know, and then eventually I got uh, this deputy headmaster. I put an electrical wire from the spark plug underneath, through the firewall, underneath the carpet and up underneath his seat. And they had springs in the seat in those days in the cars. And so when he started up the car, he was getting an electric shock right up the butt. And so, <laughs> and he couldn't touch anything metal. Oh. <laughs> sparks going out of him. And um, I put a dead fish in his door Oh, one my day. goodness, you were naughty. Yeah, and uh, he used to give these two women teachers a ride to school, but they wouldn't get in the car. It stank so badly. But it's, you know, he knew it was me because I'd be, you know, within 100 yards watching the the behavior <laughs> that I created. <laughs> no, I had a lot of uh, time for messing around, but no time for schoolwork. Well, it sounds like that was all preparing you for the ultimate job of being an actor anyway, right? There you go. Because... Um, and Errol Flynn, who happened to be an Aussie too, yeah. you were watching. Yeah, I liked him. I'd never met him, but I liked him. Did you know he was an Aussie at that time? Or? Oh, yeah, everyone Everyone knew. Yeah, he was born in Tasmania, I think. Yeah, that's right. Um, so you met, you met the, the girl that you chased to London in Canberra at that time? Yeah, I was invited to uh, a party through um, one of the uh, educated friends of mine. And uh, I was following her around in the party, but she had a boyfriend with her and he wouldn't leave her alone. He even waited outside the bloody ladies room while she went in. Smart guy. Yeah. Well, when they were leaving, it just bounced out. I said, I'm going to take you out next week. I said to her in front of the boyfriend. I don't know what made me say it, but uh, I said it. 
And then uh, I told her, I, I said, I work at Hunt Brothers and um, I'll, I'll call you. I, I know where you live. I knew where she lived. And so um, she called, I think, 18 times to cancel. And I told all the salesmen I'm not here if she calls. So I showed up at her house and uh, she sent a brother out who was a wrestler. And he had a headlock on me. <laughs> the mother come out and saved me. <laughs> I was going purple. And that's um, when I went in the house and met, saw Bob Menzies. Wow. Yeah. And then she said, where are we going? I said, up the river for a swim. And she was a swimming champion. She was, you know, her dad was an athlete and he had all the kids doing athletics. And I could barely keep up with her when we dived in the river. And she told me later if I hadn't kept up with her, she'd never see me again. That was her <laughs> so, test, hey? Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, it was amazing. And then uh, I just fell head over heels for her. And, and she did me, I think. I saw her about six months ago in Australia. Really? What's her yeah. name? Belinda. Um, so now we get to the part of the story where you go to London. Yeah. Uh, how long were you there? What were you doing before the acting thing happened? Well, I, I lucked out. I was working um, in a used car dealership out in Finchley, which is out in the boondocks. And I was going into the Overseas Visitors Club in uh, Earl's Court where all the Australians hang out and at night time. And this one Aussie uh, said, I'm leaving my job on Monday. Why don't you uh, apply for it? I said, oh, geez, thanks, Errol. And he, I didn't know, but I'd stolen a few chicks off him. And he wanted to get back at me. So I go in to get the job in Park Lane, Mercedes Benz, on Monday morning, like he told me to. And I said, I'm here to take over Errol's job. Oh, are you? Would you mind waiting in the office here? Next thing, there's four cops come in. <laughs> And they all had sold a bunch of cars and ran off with the money and set me up. <laughs> oh. And so they started ringing Australia to find out all about me and everything else. And they found out, they realized that I was set up. And they gave me the job. Wow. And so uh, here I am working in Mercedes Benz, driving a Mercedes. We even had a Rolls uh, um, Queen ex-chauffeur that if we had to uh, take the 600 Mercedes out, We'd sit in the back with the client and the chauffeur would drive us around. Wow. And I'd give this guy five quid to take me out at night, you know, with a chick sometimes. You know, it was an amazing job. Wow. And so um, I was learning the upper crusty bit again. And uh, meanwhile, uh, this photographer came in and he said, I'll buy a Mercedes off you if you let me take pictures of you. So I was going out with Belinda at the time. We'd gotten together. Go, let's go back to that for a second. How long? You said it took you three months to find yeah, her? Yeah, well, I was in the Overseas Visitors Club and this kid came in who from my hometown. He said, I just saw Belinda down the road. I said, where? He said, in the Muse pub. And this, I ran down there like heart beating and there she is in the middle of all these cricketers. And uh, I went over and I said, can I talk to you outside? He said, whatever you got to say to me, you can say to me here. I said, no, I'd like to talk to you outside. And this guy poked his head in and said, you heard what you said. And my fist took about a second to hit him. Oh, <laughs> I, I can imagine. I didn't even think. Just bang, it was instinct. And I picked her up and took her outside, put her in the car, and then ran around the other side to get in, and she jumps out. And all these crickets are coming out of the bloody pub. And I thought, oh, I better take off. I'll get beaten up here. So I took off, and... Uh, and then I got a letter from her because I'd been writing to her, you know, all the time. She knew where I was all the time, but I didn't know where she was. And I got a letter at the, uh, the car dealership that my boyfriend's doing his exams and we can see each other platonically. And I had to go around finding out what platonic meant. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you had no idea what that <laughs> no word. No idea. Had, uh, Doesn't sound did. like you'd ever had a platonic relationship no. with a woman. <laughs> no. Nobody else knew what it meant to you. Yeah. So uh, I said, yeah, sure, whatever that, whatever you want. And uh, I said, do you want to come uh, see some of England on the weekend? And she said, yeah, as long as it's platonic. And I said, okay. And I asked the guy who delivers cars, where's the furthest car you got to deliver? I'll do it for you for nothing. And he said, Bristol, which is a horrible little place. But I said, let's go to Bristol. Well, she said, I've never been there. So off we went. And we're driving back, and uh, 
I stopped the car under the freeway, and next thing she comes over at me, and I put my hand up. I thought she's going to hit me. And she says, I love you. And so we, I got her to move in. She didn't want to move in because of her father. And I said, well, you don't love me, and blah, blah, blah. And finally she moved in. And then back to this photographer. He says to me that, no, I sent Belinda along to get the pictures. And he come back over to the shop and he says, no, I want to take pictures of you. And uh, they're looking for people that look like you because they had all these pretty boys before and then they wanted someone rugged. And so meanwhile, uh, he, he said, here, take these pictures that you took of me and take them down to Scotty's modeling agency in Bond Street. And I did. And next thing you know, uh, I'm sitting there all lunchtime and they didn't even call me in the office. I said, screw that, and I threw him up in the air and went back to work. Meanwhile, Bert Stern, who's like number one photographer in the world, <laughs> comes in and he's, he was doing uh, shots with babies, holding nude babies up with the sweater, doing the sweater ad with the guy playing with their kid. And the babies were pissing on the model. And he, the third time he said, that's it, and got up and walked out. And there's Bert Stern, he's got no model. And he goes to Scotty's to get uh, another model, and he sees my pictures, and he said, get me this guy. So you, did they just pick them up off the floor and he happened to see them? No, they were still on the floor when he oh, walked in. Oh, really? <laughs> and, uh, he'd pick one up and he said, get me this guy. And then uh, they called the photographer who took my pictures because there was any contact they had. And they, he told them where I worked, and then uh, they said, get your butt over to the Times building there's a photographer called Bert Stern wants to use you and it was 3 30 in the afternoon and I said I'll get there at 5 30 because I had no idea how important this guy was and I got there at 5 30 and all the mothers are lined up down the hallway with their babies and and they were peeing on me but I thought it was fun I didn't care you got and, paid yeah and six months later it was six months or three months later a long time later the pictures came out and it was for Acroland and Jean Shrimpton, who was the top uh, female yeah. model at the time, she did the women's part, and I didn't know that either because she was separate to me. And I did the men, but it looked like we worked together and I'm with Bert Stern and everyone's calling up, who's this new guy? <laughs> and so I'm working every day. I had to quit the car sales business because the money was, you know, one day was more than I got in a month. Wow. And so uh, I was going all over the world, nearly. I went to New York, I went to Rome, Germany, uh, in Spain, I met this girl who was engaged, um, a model, and I tried to do a number on her, but she w didn't want to know. <laughs> and so uh, I didn't go, I didn't misbehave with her at all, and we were there for about another week. And then I was at the airport, and she was there, and I was put, put my bag on to go to London, and she comes over and says, uh, I'm going to see my mother in Menorca. That's another little island next to Menorca. Uh, would you like to come? I said, I've sent my bag to London. She said, too bad, and turned around and walked away. And I thought, oh, shit. So I never saw the bag again. <laughs> I went with her. And I uh, called Belinda up and told her I'd be another week. You know, the job's been extended. And when I came back to London, she knew I'd been with someone else. So that relationship was going downhill. And my agent said, there's this girl who wants to have lunch with you. So it's Gundel. And we're having lunch, and she's waving a finger in front of me the whole time. And I said, what's wrong with your hand? I couldn't figure out. She'd given up her engagement ring. <laughs> and so uh, there I was. Belinda moved out, and Gundel moved in. So I, uh, I had an affair with her for quite some time. And then I got involved with an Australian who had uh, health studios. And I had all this money, so I gave it to him for a percentage of it in Belgium because he was driving a Ferrari and uh, almost put over a cliff in Switzerland when we were there. And uh, we had to hitchhike back into town because one wheel was hanging over a cliff. And so uh, I said to him one day, I said, what did you do with the Ferrari? He said, oh, geez, I forgot about it. That's how <laughs> crazy he was. <laughs> I thought, geez, i got to get it with this guy. This guy's got money to burn. And so I gave him all my money, and uh, next thing I got a note saying I've sold the business. I've taken off. I've, got, uh, I've taken all the money. Play your best shot. 
Wow. So I lost all my money and I had to go back to modeling again. Meanwhile, I was working mainly in Europe because I'd burnt out in London. I was living in France. And uh, I was over in London. And so Ken and I were, you know, screwing every woman that we could in London. And uh, we were having a threesome one day. And he's talking to me. Well, he's, he said, you got to help me out. I said, what do you mean? I've helped you out already. He said, no, no. <laughs> he said, my girlfriend, she's coming into town tomorrow. And I didn't know. I thought she was going to be away for another few days. And I've got a date with the best agent in London. I went, what agent? I said, a film agent. He wanted to be an actor. And so uh, he said, you've got to meet her on this corner and take her to the screening. Otherwise, I'll stand her up and she won't ever talk to me again. And I said, oh, shit, I'll do it for you. What's she look like? Don't worry about it. Just go. On. <laughs> so I took her to a screening. And everyone was there, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles. That's how they saw movies. Wow. And I didn't see the movie. I was looking at them all the time. You know, I was saying, Jesus, there's someone, so there's, there's Rod Stewart. There's, uh, you know, all that English pop crowd were there. And uh, I won't uh, say what happened with Maggie and I, but I went back to Paris afterwards. And then, uh, this is hard to believe. I'd gone to La Capole restaurant in France, in Paris, and met a girl there and got to her place, who I'd never met before, and we walked in, the phone's ringing. And she says, put two. I said, how can that be? <laughs> Nobody is Maggie Abbott. <laughs> and she says, uh, you got to get your butt back to London. I think you're right for a film that they're having trouble finding someone for. I said, Maggie, I'm not an actor. So Maggie tracked you down to this woman's oh, apartment. Yeah. She in called my roommate and... Uh, he said, I went to La Capole restaurant, called the maitre d' there, and he said, in those days, I said, that I left with this girl. And so she tracked, that's how she tracked me down. That's how desperate she was to get me. And meanwhile, I hung up and forgot about it. And then about three or four weeks later, I'm back in London, and Ken said, what did Maggie want you for? Because he looked at me, and she was, rang me, she rang everybody, find out, find out where you were. I said, I don't know. She didn't tell me. She wouldn't tell me what the film was about. She wanted me to act in a film. I'm not an actor. He says, let's go and see her. So he took me up there. I wouldn't have seen her again unless he took me up there. So uh, I, and then she made him wait outside and took me inside into her office and uh, said, I think you're right for a film that they're having trouble finding someone for. I said, what film? She said, James Bond. And I said, wow. Me? James Bond? How come? She said, you've got what they're looking for. And I said, what's that? Said, well, put it politely, your arrogance. <laughs> <laughs> she said, you're so bloody sure of yourself. And uh, if you can show them that side of you, you'll get the part. So I went down to see them and they kicked me out because I was... Uh, you know, I wasn't in the union, I wasn't, you know, and she couldn't get me an appointment because I wasn't in the union. She said, you got to get in there. But meanwhile, I'd seen all the, I saw a whole bunch of actors who were waiting to be, you know, interviewed, and they all had short hair, and I had long hair and sideburns, and, um, and so I went and got an English suit, got my hair cut where Sean Connery got his hair cut, which was right down from where I worked as a salesman. So I knew Kurt the barber. Ah. And so... Yeah, so I you said, said give me a Bond haircut. Yeah, and he said, no, you look great, Larry, you are. I said, give me a Bond haircut. So he did, but just like Connery's. And then uh, I went back to where the interviews were, and I knew that Dyson Lovell, he was the casting director's office, was the first doorway on the right up the stairs. Because Maggie told me all that. So I waited till this girl bent down to get something, and I just... Ran right past her up the stairs, and she said, "Hey, yo, what are you doing? Come back here!" And I was at the top of the stairs, and I had a Rolex, and I, I was leaning on the side of the door. And Dyson Lovell, the casting guy, was talking to Harry Saltzman on the phone. Otherwise, I wouldn't have gotten past him. He said, "Who are you?" I said, "I heard you're looking for James Bond." <laughs> and uh, he said, "Hey, you're the guy." And Harry said, "Bring him over." They were desperate looking for someone, and so. Uh, 
as I was going across the road, he's asked me to tell him my life story, and I told him I was making films in Russia and China and places I didn't think they could check on. So you <laughs> were just, you just bullshit. Bullshit all the way across <laughs> the road. And it, then I got into his office, and he told me later, this impressed him, what I did. He was on the phone, Harry, with his feet up on the desk, and he's pointing at the chair right in front of his feet for me to sit in while he's talking on the phone. And I said, screw that. And I went over and looked out the window. And, uh, and, he, and then he put on his shoes, hung up the phone, come over to the window, and he said, tell me your life story. And I thought, Jesus, I just told a bunch of lies to Dyson. You've got to keep track of your lies. Yeah. I said, I just told him, let him tell you. He said, that impressed me too. He said, you had such an attitude. He said, exactly what we're looking for. Arrogant son of a bitch, you know. And so uh, then he said, uh, the Dyson, he said, when's the director coming back? He was in Switzerland location hunting, having a good time. And it's Friday. He said, Friday at uh, 3 o'clock he'll be here, sir. And Peter apparently was going to stay in Switzerland for the weekend. And uh, he said, uh, you'll be here at 3 o'clock on Friday. And I thought, this is my out. I can't. He said, why not? I said, I'm doing a film in Paris. Uh, how much are they paying you? I said, 500 pound a day, which was half a year's wages in those days. <laughs> he said, go down and see Stanley Sopel. He's the accountant. He'll give you 500 pounds. You'll be here at 3 o'clock on Friday. So I go down there, and Stanley didn't even know what the 500 was for, because they just called, give that guy 500 pounds. You know, and he said, what's this for? I said, to come back. He said, what? You're an actor. Nobody gets paid to come back for a film. And he said, uh, I'll give you 250 I said, no, I'm out of here. And he said, no, hang on. He gave, gave you the 500 You got paid to come back for an audition. Oh, half a year's way of salary. And because I was trying to get out of there. I thought, this is way over my head. And uh, I'm just going to make an ass of myself. So I wanted to get out of there. And, the, and I had an Australian accent, and I walked sort of like sideways. I swayed when I walked, you know, which they got rid of later. But meanwhile, uh, Maggie, I called Maggie from a public phone box right outside their office. I said, how'd you do? I said, they gave me 500 pounds to come back on Friday. George, stop messing around. How'd you do? I said, they gave me 500 pounds to come back. I said, where are you? I told you the phone box. I said, I'll be down there. So she came down, it was only a few blocks away. And uh, she couldn't believe it. She said, I've never heard of an actor getting paid for a comeback or a callback. And I didn't know they didn't get paid. I just, yeah. I said, oh, I didn't. And he said, well, you make sure you see Peter on Friday at 3 o'clock. I said, okay. So I go up to see Peter on Friday. I had a little acting lesson that night. <laughs> a guy I knew who used to teach acting, he was in, in a flat not far from mine when I lived in London. I knocked on his door. I said, I need an acting lesson. What for? I said, I'm going up for James Bond. <laughs> and he laughed. And he got uh, this guy, Ronan O'Reilly, to come and a few other guys to come and... He said, this guy's up for James Bond. You've got to come and see it before they gave me a lesson. So uh, anyway... He became your manager, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, that's Ro how it Rowan. started. Yeah. So meanwhile, I'm in, I'm in the office with uh, Peter Hunt and Peter's giving me a real... The director of Bond, yeah. Yeah, a real sour look. Tell me your life story. He was really mad at me because he was going to spend the weekend... Because he was me. forced to come back yeah. from Switzerland for you. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know what made me do it, but I just said, Peter, I've never spoken in front of a camera in my life. And he went, what? They brought me back here? And he got up and he started laughing. He was walking around the room. I thought, this guy's nuts. And uh, he was laughing because I'd fooled the two most ruthless men he'd ever met in his life. <laughs> That's what he told me. Wow. He said, you can act. You've fooled two of the most ruthless men I've ever met in my life. And so uh, we're going across to see him. We get up the top of the stairs and, and they've got my commercial showing on a screen. And I said, get him out of here. He's a clothes peg. A clothes peg, they called me, not a clothes hanger. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> and then Peter said, no, I want to test him. No, i got to test him. We'll be the laughing stock of the industry testing a male clothes peg for James Bond. And Peter said, I'll test him at your place, Harry's place. He said, yeah, the crew, the camera crew, going to tell everybody, so we'll still be the laughing stock of the industry. 
said, no, I'll get Samuelson himself to do it. And I, I know he'd keep quiet. So they had to say, okay, because Peter's directing the, you know, he'd been get, he'd edited all the other Bond films. He was an important part of the, the wheel. And uh, I did most of my tests out there that they wanted. I rode horses, I swam, I did a love scene with, uh, what was her name? Patty Noble, singer from oh, Australia. What was her name? Patsy, Patsy Noble. Patsy Noble. Okay. Yeah, from that era. And they and Peter purposely got her because she was Australian. And he thought I'd be comfortable with her. Yeah, you know, I wasn't. Anyway, next thing I know, uh, they let me into the studio as the person who was testing all the other parts. You know, the other parts in the film. I was playing the James Bond. So the production office thought I was just the stand-in for James Bond. They didn't know that Peter was giving me experience by doing all the tests with the other actors. And then they sent me to uh, a woman who uh, changed my accent from Australian to English. Had a match in my mouth. Yeah. 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 So, uh, and then uh, I had uh, another guy teaching me how to walk like a, a gentleman and not like a drunken Australian. And uh, and then they gave me a, a suite in uh, in a Grosvenor house in Park Lane, right next to Dorchester. And they even tested me. I'd forgotten about this test. This guy shows up with this gorgeous-looking woman at the door at about nine o'clock at night because I wasn't allowed to tell anybody that I was tested for James Bond. But he was a p film producer. And he had this beautiful girl with him. And he said, this girl wants to make love to you. I said, okay, bring her in. And I'm thinking it's going to be a threesome with Ken, like Ken and I were having. <laughs> and we're going at it. And the, the guy's sitting on the chair with his suit still on, his tie on. I said, Come on, get ready, man. <laughs> anyway, we finished up. And he just got all around and took her out and left. And I kind of forgot about it. I thought that, that was a great little gift <laughs> and then um this bond job's not bad so meanwhile about two years later he came up to me in a restaurant he said remember me i said no he said remember you were in the grosvenor house and i brought a girl up yeah yeah what was that about he said you're a male model they want to make sure you weren't gay wow <laughs> that was another test i had so uh meanwhile uh i passed that test You know, these are all things that you'll hear about now and you can imagine in the day and age we're in now how any one of these things that you're telling me would go down. No. <laughs> yeah, it's weird, isn't it? But meanwhile, uh, I uh, got past that test. And then uh, what was the latest thing? Oh, yeah. The United Artists in America wanted to see me fight. And Harry said to him, he's Australian. All Australians can fight. <laughs> They said, no, we want to see him on film fighting. So they got, oh, yeah, they gave me about a 10-minute lesson on you got to miss him. You can't hit him, you know, <laughs> and uh, stunt fighting. And then the stunt director and five or six stuntmen were there, and I had to fight them all, one after another. And uh, what was his name? Geller or something. He's a Russian wrestler. I clipped him on the chin, and he went down, and he was on the floor like this, shaking. And uh, Harry comes, Harry Salzman comes along, steps over him, grabs my arm, takes me up against the wall. This is after four months of testing. He says, we're going with you. Tell anybody and the deal's off. Go to my travel agent, get a ticket anywhere in the world, and then call me and tell me where you are, and I'll tell you when to come back. Because they had a deal with Life magazine, the cover and all to that stuff. To announce who the book Yeah, and, they, and all this stuff. And the Pope... Uh, banned the pill, and <laughs> they gave him the cover. So you lost the cover of time to yeah the, the pope. pope. <laughs> but uh, I had six inside pages. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, here I am in Paris, back in Paris, and all my friends hadn't seen me for four months, and I hadn't spoken to them because I wasn't allowed to talk to anybody. There's about six or eight of us at the table. I said, "Where you been, Lazenby?" I said, "I was in London, testing for the Bond film." Oh, yeah, did you get it? I said, yeah. I said, oh, shit. But they didn't believe you anyway, <laughs> no! Paul. They, they just dropped the subject and forgot about it. 
And then uh, when I did the film, I came back to London at Christmas time, and they all met up with me there, and we had a blast. But you know, I, meanwhile, I was in Switzerland, and I was getting tired of being up in the hill all the time, and I wanted to get off the bloody hill at night. And uh, so they gave me a helicopter that I could use. And uh, then I was in the, uh, uh, where is it, the accountant's office getting my per diem, and they were giving me 100 pounds a week. And uh, uh, Harry Saltzman was in there one day, and I looked at him, I said, how much does the other fellow get? I used to call him the other fellow all the time. And uh, he looked at the accountant, and he said, tell him. He said, 1,000. And I looked at Harry, and I, I said, went, okay, give him 1,000 a week. <laughs> and I got a briefcase full of cash, right, because there's nowhere to spend it. And uh, Telly Savalas saw me open my briefcase one day. Hey, kid, you play poker? I said, no. He said, come, we'll teach you how to play. <laughs> and, and he got a a few thousand pounds off me. And uh, Harry came past, and he saw it. He said, move over, kid. And Telly said, no, Harry, no. Because Harry used to be a professional gambler. And he lost all his money, and that's when he started in the film business. So Harry won the money back for you? Gave it to me. He said, leave my boy alone. <laughs> well, Telly was a very experienced actor at that point, right? Oh, yeah. Or, so playing opposite him must have been really well, they, exciting. Well, they told... Telly to uh, give me any tips he can. And uh, after I did my first scene with him, he said, he doesn't need any help. <laughs> wow. So was that fine. was a compliment. Yeah. So what do you think? It, do, you, do you actually think that your car salesman days actually helped you with the confidence? Everything did. You know, the fact that uh, you get interviewed by the police because they suspect you might be one of the guy on the motorcycle and you can pull that off. And uh, so you've been acting your whole life, basically. Yeah, I mean, I had to. Uh, you can't tell, uh, you know, the truth in certain situations, and that's basically acting. You know, that's what it is. It's like um, when I, uh, you know, finished doing Bond and I tried to get a job as an actor, I had no problem. But then I'd get thrown off the film because the Bond people would tell them I'm under contract to them, and so I gave up after about a year trying to get a job and bought a boat and went sailing for 15 months. Wow. So um, on the set of Bond, I mean, uh, on it's on Her Majesty's service for anybody yeah. listening to this that doesn't know the movie, they should rent it or buy it or watch it because it's one of the, the great Bond movies, I think. Um, you are in incredible situations non-stop all the way through that movie. And you did your own stunts, is that yeah. right? The only thing I wasn't allowed to do was the skiing. The insurance company had read the script and said, well, the lead actor, he's not allowed to ski, but I did ski past the camera when it was close-ups and yeah. stuff. And I did the Yeah, there was a lot of skiing. Yeah, I did the bobsledding. They really? didn't say well, I wasn't allowed to do that. So <laughs> and I did all the fight scenes, every one of them. They even in the bell room, they had these cardboard bells and they were flying around too much, so they put the real belt in, back in. And I had bumps all over me from banging into these bells. But I thought, you know, I was hanging from wires 3,000 feet up. I jumped out of helicopters, and I was the last one to jump out, and the helicopter moves up every time someone jumps out. And then he broke my bloody knees doing that. And, really? Uh, mm hmm And another time I pulled a shoulder out, but I, I thought the other guy did it as well. I didn't know that. Actors didn't do their own stunts. Well, the other guy, as we keep referring to him, Sean Connery, did you ever meet him? Oh, yeah. I had an article in my pocket that uh, my movie was the best James Bond movie so far. And uh, that was just one reporter. Most of them panned it. But I, uh, I walked into this restaurant and there was Connery sitting by himself. So I went over and I sat next to him. He didn't look at me and I put that article down in front of him. And he read it, he said, hmm, and handed it back to me. It still didn't look at me. So I went over and sat where I was sitting with uh, some producers who wanted me to do a Benson Hedges commercial for Australia. And this is in, Bur uh, in Burbank. And uh, Conrad comes over on the way out and says, uh, hey, you did a good job, kid. And uh, 
That was the first time I met him. Another time he was coming into a restaurant and I was already in there seated. And he saw me and he went, and I didn't go near him. So he went like, sh like yeah. don't come, don't talk to me, or yeah, don't talk to me because you know he doesn't want to attract attention. It'll be a lot of attention. He, he's sitting right behind me. I can hear everything he says. It was um, I like him. Have you talked to or met any of the Bonds after you? Oh sure, all of them or everyone except the latest one, Daniel Craig. Yeah. What do you think of him? I haven't seen him. You haven't seen any of his movies? No. Have you seen any of the Bond no. movies since yours? None. No. None. Really? I've met the Bonds because there was occasions where we had to all meet the Queen. We were in the Albert Hall and we got introduced. And you won't believe it, I was the last one introduced because I was... Uh, Connery wasn't there. And uh, all the others were introduced and they gave me a standing ovation. Wow. Yeah. They slowly just started to lift up. One, you know, like one group and then all and then the whole thing. It was sent shivers right through me. Wow. I uh so I knew something was good there. When the movie came out, um were there were there premieres, I mean I'm assuming in London, but did you come to Hollywood and I didn't do the um press. I did the press on my own. They wouldn't let me do the press unless I signed the contract and shaved my beard off. What? That's what they told me. And uh, so I went and did it on my own. What, you mean they were promoting their James Bond movie but they didn't want the guy playing James Bond to do any press? No, they didn't want me to go. Because you would be photographed with a beard. Yeah. They wanted me to look like James Bond or the deal's off. But Harry offered me a million pounds cash anywhere in the world if I'd do another one. And that was uh, what Hugh Hefner paid for his mansion in those days. Wow. And I know you've been asked this question a million times, but I have to ask it. What the hell did, were you thinking? <laughs> I was thinking that I... See, Ronan O'Reilly was my manager, and he convinced me. I said, they've offered me a million pounds. He said, you'll get a million pounds in two movies. He said, there's a guy called Clint Eastwood making spaghetti westerns in Italy, and he's only there for four weeks, and he gets half a million pounds. You do two spaghetti westerns and you'll have a million pounds and then you're free. You don't have to be James Bond anymore. And uh, it wasn't a great image at the time because it was hippie time. Wow. And so... It's hard to believe that anyone would not want to be James Bond. Like, Well, they all had bell bottoms and long hair and flowered shirts and uh, earrings. and uh, uh, That's what you had to wear if you wanted to get laid. <laughs> and and he was a government agent, which is not very no sexy. It, it, at he that was time. out. He was out. And um, meanwhile, uh, I could have, you know. And they said they'll let me do United Artists when I was in New York doing some interviews that I paid that I paid my own fare to get there to New York, and I was a free agent at the time with Ronan O'Reilly next to me, and we went up to uh, see what was the name of the the guys, the two guys, the producers at United Artists at the time, they took me into this office where they had like hundreds of uh, films on the, and cassette the posters. Forms. Yeah, no, uh, cassettes. Oh. And he said, we own the rights, the film rights to all this and books. He showed me all the books. You can pick anyone you like in between Bond movies. And I said, what's wrong with that? He said, they'll only let you do things that don't alter the image of James Bond. And so I turned that down too. I went to acting class. I used to enjoy acting, Charles Conrad. And I was in his class oh, for a few months and in the B class kind of thing. And I said, look, I've done more film work than most of these guys. And they how come I'm not in your A class? And he said, when you stop playing James Bond, I might let you in. <laughs> <laughs> Every script I got. So, but then I got it. I got <laughs> what they were talking about. And he gave me a script for an 18-year-old girl. It was, and, and it had him, her, you know, but the 18-year-old girl, he swapped him over. And I started behaving like an 18-year-old girl. <laughs> and he says, now you got it. Because you can only do it with a writer, it's just one writer. If you got two or three different writers, you, you, you jump around, then you got to fake it. Yeah. But... 
I was acting and getting standing ovations and Christ knows what in the class because I was doing the character. And uh, I did that for 20 years. You went back to Australia and did a film and you did Matlock Police, didn't you, in Australia Yeah, well? brief, briefly, yeah. Did you ever consider like going back there and, and becoming an actor yeah, in Australia? Yeah, I did at that, that time, I did, but uh, I was getting bits and pieces and then I thought if I want to get in the big time, I better get over here. Let's go back. When was the first time you came to Hollywood? And do you remember how you felt? Like back then it was a big deal. Yeah, I, I came right after, the, before the film came out. In fact, I went into my, I had an agent who was Maggie Abbott, CMA, ICM now they call, um, here in Hollywood. And I went to see him. I'd never met him before. And uh, he told me uh, that I'd be fine here. And, and I looked through his book and I said, give me her number. It was Jill St. John. <laughs> so I called her up. I said, hey, you like to meet James Bond? And she says, uh, yeah, okay. What do you want? Uh, I said, I'd like to take you to dinner. All right. So she gave me her address, and I went up there in a cab, paid the cab off because she opened the garage, and there's a Ferrari and a, wow. a BMW, no, a Mercedes-Benz and a station wagon. And, and she said, well, which one do you want to go in? I said, well, guess. <laughs> so we took the Ferrari. <laughs> And uh, meanwhile, uh, that got me into trouble too because uh, apparently the guy who bought the Ferrari was a gangster. He called me up and said, you better get your butt over here if you want to live. So that was the end of your romance with Jill? Yeah, was it ever. Quick, because he told me about this guy who uh, bought that Ferrari. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, okay, I'll see you later. I went to Australia. And then I went to England and she showed up. I said, you're trying to get me killed? got to be kidding. He said, I'm here with my girlfriend. He doesn't know. I said, yeah, but one guy takes a picture or something of yeah. me. And I said, I'm dead, mate. But that's, um, you know, that was Hollywood. That's how the world is still. Uh, what was it like for an Aussie in Hollywood back then? And um, why do you think that Australians have become so um, celebrated and beloved in the film industry, you know, since your time. You were really one of the first. Well, I don't know why, but uh, I think it's Mel Gibson, not Mel Gibson, uh, Russell Crowe stayed with me for like three months. Did he? he? He was, we had the same agent in Australia and she rang me up and asked me, I gotta put this actor up because he didn't have any money. And so I did and uh, he took off. But meanwhile... Uh, was it here in Santa Monica or you yeah. were living somewhere else then? No. You were here? Not this place. I was living up on 17th Street. Yeah. But I was also living in Hawaii. And uh, so I had plenty of room. I had a three-bedroom place there. And wow. My, so Russell was with me for about three months. How was that? <laughs> well, I didn't see him that often because I was in Hawaii. Yeah. But we'd go out together and chat and whatever. But... Uh, he was a good guy. What what did acting come to mean to you after James Bond? I mean, it was an accident that you got into the profession, but obviously you had the greatest start any actor could ever <laughs> possibly want. I know. Well, like I told you, I went to Charles Conrad, who was the best acting teacher in the world, I say, because he taught me how to act. And then uh, and he told me what it's about. It's about the writer. You're, you're an instrument for the writer. And if you can get in touch with that talent, it, it comes through. But most scripts have been written by 10 people by the time you get them. Mm. They've been changed for, the, for different reasons. Right. Uh, mainly budget. And they, uh, they're not written by the same writer. It's like a, you're an instrument, like a musical instrument for the writer. And if you get... Conrad used to get scripts that were only written by one person and you could do it. And I heard Meryl Streep say, say something similar to what I'm telling you, how you just become an instrument. She says it only happened to her like a couple of times. The rest of the time she's got to fake it. But she's good at it. Right. And uh, that side of it, you know, it doesn't mean anything to me, acting. I mean, if I could, you know, yeah, acting most of your life, you know, you're programmed from birth. And you, I think when you're dying, you find out who you are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
And that's, uh, you know, it's basically a big program, the whole thing. Everyone's well, acting. Well, you've also had time to have a, a really rich um, personal and family life as well. Oh, um, yeah. It's been number one to me. And, you know, and your two wives were both, you know, very famous and successful in their own... Well, they were both rich. Yeah, and, uh, and Pam Shriver. Yeah. To say you've had a charmed life would probably be an understatement, right? It would be, yeah. <laughs> I mean, do you look back when you're telling these stories and still think, you know, that there are so many things that have to come together for each one of those things to happen and they all happen to you? Exactly, but when I saw the first James Bond film, Dr. No, I went, it was in Canberra, and I went with a girl, and I had a, like an 80% chance going in and about a 10% chance coming out. Oh. You, so you wanted to be the guy on screen who had the 100% chance. Oh, yeah. And it pretty much worked that way, right? <laughs> I mean, I've heard other interviews you've done where you certainly uh, had a good time even while you were playing James Bond on the set, right? Oh, yeah. Everybody wanted me. And it was uh, understandable. You know, I was young and stupid. And uh, they thought they could control me or whatever. And I can remember uh, making love to a girl in my bedroom and the girl next door was banging on the wall saying, stop it, you're making me horny. <laughs> I won't <laughs> tell you which actress it was. But uh, it was, and they hung a, a, you know, one of the stunt dolls. They dressed it up as a girl. And uh, hung it. I opened my door and banged into it and a note on it. Here's one you haven't had. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so girls did it. Wow. Well, I mean, you obviously had enough confidence to pull off everything you've, you've done. And, right. And you've had a great life. Um, do you have any regrets? I mean, I guess. No, I, I don't, don't know if you could go back again with a different manager who would have told you. Are you no, an idiot? Don't. don't give up Bond. I've had a great life and I wouldn't have had the kids I've had and stuff like that if I'd have been Bond. Some psychic did a reading on me. He said, if you'd have kept up James Bond, you'd be a drug addict paying three different wives that you had in Beverly Hills <laughs> houses and, uh, you know, paying for their houses because they'd marry you for your money and fame and whatever. Right. You know, I had women that fell in love with me because I didn't have anything. Mm. When I met Chris, we were dead broke. Had to. That's why I bought the boat, to have a roof over my head. Wow. I just cannot thank you enough for doing this and all the Aussies um, will love to hear this story. Oh, so Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, i got to go and see my kids. They're doing sports. That's important. Yeah. I've interviewed hundreds of actors in my career from all over the world, but few have been as entertaining as George Lazenby. He says he has no regrets about walking away from 007 after only one film and after listening to him talk about his incredibly charmed life, I believe him. Until next time, that's all from Aussies in Hollywood. Aussies in Hollywood was presented by me, Jenny Cooney, and recorded in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Audio production was by Nick Slater and executive producer was Jenny Goggin. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the app or look me up on iTunes.